This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh, very fresh today, Kurt, and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with our practitioner's perspective on those stories you should be following. I'm Chris Ekimoff. Kurt, it's great to be with you here on this special and timely episode of the Insecurities Podcast. Yeah, I love these special episodes just in time for anyone who wants something to listen to while they are driving to grandma's house for Thanksgiving. That's right. We're coming in with a bonus episode here because last week the SEC released its annual enforcement report and its annual whistleblower report. So, of course, we wanted to get you a few takes on those reports, what we think they mean. And we brought in a few friends to help us break it down. We've got Sarah Concanon from Quinn Emanuel, Howard Sheck from Stone Turn, Teresa Goody Guillen from Baker Hostetler, and Jane Norberg from Arnold and Porter. Now we just give a few of our sort of top line comments, orient our listeners to the reports, and then we can get to the good stuff with our guests. As we've talked about in the years prior, Kurt, putting up the Christmas tree in my house happens in early November, and the holiday season <laughs> kicks off with the SEC's enforcement results every year. So those longtime listeners will know about this right before the holidays. 760 total enforcement actions in fiscal 2022, ending on September 30th, uh, which is a 9% increase of total actions over the prior year. Uh, we talked about on our most recent episode with former chief accountant Matt Jakes, uh, about the standalone, you know, the timing of, of certain enforcement actions and how they can can run the gamut from uh, year to year. There's 462 new standalone actions that are, are recorded here in fiscal 22. That's a six and a half percent increase over 21. So a lot of new activity happening at the commission as well. And then, you know, looking at the content and the types of cases, I mean, we call it the kitchen sink last year. I think we're in the <laughs> same boat. There's just a lot here for anyone who's read the report or even glossed over the some of the summary statistics, we're seeing a lot of actions brought across a variety of types of cases that we're used to. You know, Kurt, I'm a big financial fraud and disclosure guy. But we've also seen from a legal side, a lot of maybe new theories or new ideas being brought up in some of the cases that are referenced in, in this enforcement results press release for them. The big, the big number that everyone at the commission is talking about is the dollars. $6.4 billion in total, that includes civil penalties, disgorgement, and that pesky prejudgment interest. And we're seeing that a huge increase over prior year, being $3.8 billion. And Kurt, you and I have talked about how there's a couple of very large cases with, with significant penalties and, and disgorgement that are driving those amounts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there were a couple of cases that drove the total number up, but still, even if you back those out, we're at or near a, a record level in terms of you know penalties and disgorgement. So it was a big mm -hmm. year for SEC enforcement. And you know, there were a couple of things. I want to talk a little bit about the substance, but first just a couple notes on sort of the the format and and some things that happened around the release of the report. First, on the format, last year we talked an awful lot about how, you know, the typical glossy 
30 plus page SEC enforcement report was reduced to sort of a press release mm -hmm. last year that maybe if you printed it out was about four pages long. <laughs> more economical maybe on the printer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think some, some folks were left wanting more perhaps. Mm -hmm. This year, they sort of struck a middle ground and it's it's interesting. It Again, it's sort of styled as a press release and they're is a link to some of the statistics and a list of all the cases they brought last year, some of that more granular detail. They always provide that. But in terms of the actual report, it was a really long press release. And it mm -hmm. reminds me of the way the SEC used to do their enforcement reports about 10 years ago. I'm thinking back to some of the reports that came out when Rob Kazami was the director yeah. of enforcement. We had these middle eight years or so where we got those very detailed, those long, as I say, sort of glossy reports. So we'll see what the future holds. But the good news is, regardless of the format, they packed a lot of information into the report again this year that we can kind of look at and try to tease out some trends and some themes. Not that we really needed to do that because as luck would have it, on the day that the SEC released the enforcement report, that coincided with the annual Securities Enforcement Forum hosted by Bruce Carton and our friends That's over right. at Securities Docket. Mm -hmm. And the SEC's Director of Enforcement, Gabir Graywall, gave a speech that day that really hit, I think, most of the high notes or the important themes from the SEC's enforcement report. I'll come around to some of those first, but Chris, why don't you tell me about some of your takeaways from, from the report this year? Yeah, looking back, this is really the first full year, if you will, or, or significant year of, of Director Grewal's, you know, leadership in the Division of Enforcement. And I recall Kurt his his first kind of prepared remarks in the fall of last year after taking the position moved the needle in terms of the things that they were focused on regarding individual accountability and and no admit, no deny, and, and a lot of the things we've talked about prior. And I'm starting to see those really in this press release is we're seeing those actions being brought. We're seeing the identification of individuals as well as, like we talked about, getting all of the standard kind of enforcement violation issues that we'd expect in a given year for the commission in as well. So I don't know kind of on a macro perspective how effective the delivery is on kind of what might have been those goals back in October of 2021. But I think that we're, we're seeing movement towards those types of, of issues that the commission has beat over and over with their drum about these these key topics and what they're looking for. Kurt, I know you want to talk a little bit about Director Garal's speech, but the other note that I took from the discussion is really there was a talk of a ratio of penalties to disgorgement. Yeah. And I think one of the theories that gets brought up is really when is the commission moving from kind of a speed bump to an actual obstacle and, and a deterrent for inappropriate behavior or for some of these violations? And that I thought was interesting is to talk about if we penalize people twice as much as we take away from them, generally speaking, that that would be a higher level of deterrence for future bad actions. I don't know if that's the right number. I don't know if there is a right number, <laughs> but I'm interested in kind of your thoughts on, on that ratio as well, Kurt, knowing you you always love to talk about these accounting ratios with me. Yeah, absolutely. It's critically important. The point that you're making is how does the SEC enforcement staff, how does the director think about setting penalties? And it was a big point that Director Graywall made during his speech at the Securities Enforcement Forum, and it's something that clearly comes through in the enforcement report. And you're right, it's that 2x number. You know, it's it, he said it a couple times during the speech where he said, before I got here, it felt like the disgorgement was always twice as much as the penalty. And I, you know, Director Graywall, don't think that's appropriately calibrated. So one of the things that we have tried to do over the last year is to recalibrate our 
penalties and disgorgement ratio so that now what you're seeing is a, a 2x in the opposite direction, right? So that the penalties are now 2x the amount of disgorgement. And I can tell you that caused a lot of eyebrows to go up among mm -hmm. members of the defense bar. But <laughs> you kind of see it in the results, right? We're saying it's a mm -hmm. record amount of penalties and disgorgement by a lot. And like I said, even if you back out a couple of those outlier cases, you're, you're still there. So I think that this does it maybe changes the the dynamic for folks that find themselves caught up in an SEC enforcement action because I think the amount it might mm -hmm. cost to settle that action is higher than you might have anticipated a few years ago. I think that's just the, the new reality. But I also think that it is completely in line with what we've heard from Director Graywall time and time again over you know the last year or so, which is that he wants penalties designed to deter. And he thinks that a big penalty is going to keep bad actors out of the market or prevent folks from engaging in misconduct. He also likes that when you get these big penalties, folks write about it. You hear about it in the media, you see it in the news, yeah. you see it on Twitter, you know, they get to put out a splashy press release that gets shared around. And, mm -hmm. you know, does that have a deterrent effect? I don't know. I, I know that, you know, my clients wouldn't want their name in that press release, right? Nobody nobody really does. So, That's so right. there's something to it. The other piece we have to say, though, in fairness to, to the division and to Director Graywall is while he was, you know, standing up in front of the room talking an awful lot about the power of the penalty, he also said, at the same time, we are willing to rec recognize meaningful cooperation. This is another point he emphasized during his speech, and it comes through in the report itself. And he said, look, if you are doing what you can to assist the division, right, which means more than just responding to a subpoena, right, you're obligated to do that. That's not cooperation, right? That's going to get yes. you a lot of points. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's laws he, about that, said, I think. Yeah. Listen, we have walked away from cases or we have given something much less than the 2x ratio that we've been talking about when companies or individuals come in and they participate, they cooperate, they remediate, you know, they mitigate. It's all the, this, these are the things we always talk about with our clients. You probably do too, Chris. But it's how, how do we yep. convince Amen. the staff that we're trying to do the right thing and be be good corporate citizens? Um, so those, I think, were sort of the two, the two big points that were coming out, some of these more programmatic type of points. But, you know, it was interesting to me, too, to see in the report just the things that they called yeah. out as particular areas of focus, right? It's not the same every year. A lot of years you'll see insider trading in the mix, right? Like maybe we just expect to see that, but kind of seeing what's there, what's sort of a leading category, yep. I think is kind of important. So one of them this year naturally was crypto. And the, the types of things they were talking about in the crypto space were a failure to register. This is another big theme. You know, Chair Gensler wants all of these crypto platforms or exchanges to come in, register and comply. We heard it time and again at the Securities Enforcement Forum, register and comply, register and comply. Yep. So in the crypto space, they're talking about a failure to register. They were talking about outright fraud, which we, we see some of that out there in the space. And there was a first of its kind insider trading case involving NFTs. Mm -hmm. So I think that's going to continue to be an area of focus for the staff. A couple of the other areas that they highlighted maybe aren't surprising, but interesting to see that they kind of made the list or floated to the top of the list. Cybersecurity and compliance is one. G, and that's really, you know, kind of a issue or reporting or disclosure case for you, Chris, I think most of the time. Yeah. Pri private funds was actually had its own little carve out category in, in, in the report this year. 
And lastly, complex mm -hmm. products, which is something I always like to think a lot about, but uh, trying to understand some of the investment products that are available in the market, how they're being sold, how they're being created. So a really interesting report, I think, this year. Uh, the last thing I'll note, Chris, I see you nodding off. Hang with me. On the same day, on the same day that the SEC released its annual enforcement report, the Office of the Whistleblower also released its annual report. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit with Jane Norberg from Arnold and Porter. She was previously the chief of the uh, SEC's Office of the Whistleblower. But just a couple high-level stats to orient our listeners before we get into it. Uh, in fiscal year 2022, the SEC issued about $229 million in awards to 103 different whistleblowers, which makes it the second highest year in terms of dollar amounts and the number of awards. What I think is pretty crazy, we're just now in the 10-year anniversary of the SEC's whistleblower program. In that time, they have awarded $1.3 billion to 328 yeah. whistleblowers. So that program just continues to, to grow and build and be a really important tool for the SEC. Yeah, the, the thing that always scares me on that is the rewards from a whistleblower program perspective are between 10 and 30 percent of the value of the fraud. So do the math on that. You know, one point four billion of of yep, payout absolutely. to individuals, you know, the, the size of, of the fraud issues or the violations here is, is astronomical. And, you know, that leads back not only to just the six point four billion we see this year, uh, but in many others in years prior. Well, let's get to the guests here for this next segment. We'll be jumping into a few recorded conversations we've had with the four individuals you've mentioned, getting that practitioner's perspective. Hopefully you all enjoy listening to Kurt and I and our takes on the results, but let's get into some of the experts here and see what they have to say. We'd like to welcome back Sarah Kincannon of Quinn Emanuel, one of our favorite guests on the podcast. Sarah, we actually had you on almost exactly one year ago today to share your thoughts about the 2021 SEC enforcement, in air quotations, report. Uh, we talked a bit about the changing format of how the SEC was presenting its fiscal results from an enforcement perspective. As you know, in, in the past few days, the SEC has released its 2022 results, and we want to hear your takeaways from that press release and from that information. So, Sarah, what do you think about how the SEC Enforcement Division did in 2022? Thanks, Chris, for the intro, and good morning to Kurt as well. So I appreciate the reference to both our podcast this time last year and the air quote report, because that's my first key takeaway. This is still not a report, but it's getting better. So Director Graywall is sticking to the approach that he adopted last year, where he's putting out a summary statement with a array of statistics as opposed to a more traditional published report in the vein of what Steph and Steve were doing during their tenures as co-directors of the Division of Enforcement. However, this year, the accompanying statement explaining the summary statistics is significantly longer and more substantive than last year's which goes a long way toward fleshing out some of the questions that we in the defense bar were left with after last year's report about what all this means. So I think it, it's a good compromise position. It gets the data out faster, but it still gives you the perspective and the context of how the division is viewing these results. Way So I will say I am cautiously a fan 
with this year's structure. I agree. It's uh, it's it's more like a report. Actually, it kind of reminds me of the way the SEC did reports maybe like 10 or 12 years ago, you know, when when Kazami was the director of enforcement. It was this kind of glorified press release rather than the the kind of glossy, thicker, more substantive report that I think, like you said, we saw under Stephanie Avakian and Steve Pegan. But I wonder if there's anything sort of in the numbers or in the categories of cases that jumps out to you. Yeah, so two more takeaways for you. So first, the monetary relief, and I suspect I will not be the only person to bring a light toward the monetary relief, but the amounts are mind-boggling. I'm guessing that this number of 6.439 billion is going to be a focal point for many of us. But with all things SEC, the devil's in the details. And what I find most interesting about that 6.44 billion number is that there are some huge dollar value settlements late in the fiscal year that are really driving that being the highest ever penalty number and a very, very high disgorgement number. But the nature of those of, of those settlements that are driving that number, these are not fraud cases in large part. So you see 1.2 billion in relief in connection with the JP Morgan ephemeral messaging apps, books and records preservation case, or you see the EMY case, which is egregious auditor misconduct, but it's not a fraud case. And so in terms of what does this number reflect about whether the SEC's division of enforcement is in fact executing on its obligations primarily to protect investors, I question whether the number well, staggeringly high, shows you that they're really better protecting investors this year than they were last year. And I also think it's important to note that that ratio between disgorgement and penalty means that significantly more of that money may very well be going to Treasury as opposed to being distributed back to investors. Yeah, one more. Through my lens as former senior trial counsel and a trial lawyer now, I can't help but comment on the trial statistics in this report that came out. So 15 trials last year, that is significantly higher than the numbers that you've seen year after year for some time. So the, the last several reports that I can recall were approximately four to six administrative and jury trials and bench trials in total a year. So we have doubled or tripled the number of cases that the SEC is taking to trial. I think I predicted this when we spoke last year. It is a side effect of the more aggressive charges and relief the Gensler administration is looking for in their proposed settled resolutions with defense counsel. And I'm very pleased to see that more and more defense counsel are pushing the cases to trial and putting the commission to its proof. So I also see that as a very positive change. If this continues and the commission continues to take more cases to trial, you should also expect that the 85% win ratio is likely to go down because the more cases you litigate, the more likely you are to have some that just don't go your way. It's also important to kick the tires even on the 85% win ratio for this year. It says 12 out of 15 
But if you dig into that a little bit and look at the individual actions that comprise that number, many of those are partial wins. And a partial win for SEC is also a partial win for defense counsel. And often getting that partial verdict for your client, a non-fraud charge or a books and records or a disclosure violation, something short of scienter-based fraud is a big victory. And it's another reason why I urge the defense bar to be looking hard at the merits of the SEC's action and pushing more of them to trial. Yeah, this is a theme that I think we've we've heard in other places, certainly over the last year. A defense counsel and defendants in appropriate cases need to be willing to put the SEC to their proof. It's sort of, it's good for everyone. We get some actual case law we can rely on, and it sort of keeps keeps the SEC in check or maybe restores a balance. So we'll definitely keep our eye on those statistics over the next year. Next, we would like to welcome back to the show Howard Sheck. Howard is a partner with Stone Turn and a former chief accountant in the SEC's enforcement division. Howard is also a former guest here on the Insecurities Podcast. He participated in our Summer Accounting School series last summer. You can catch Howard on episode 72, which was titled Accounting and Audit Enforcement Trend Spotting. Howard, welcome back to the show. Thanks for spending some time with us. Thanks, Kurt. Glad to be back. So I think actually the title of your last episode is sort of a perfect segue to what we're talking about today, which is maybe some enforcement trend spotting. You know, Howard, as you know, the SEC recently released its annual enforcement report. I know that you've read it, and I would be interested in any of the key themes or trends that jumped out for you. Sure, Kurt. Regarding the cases, I mean, the SEC highlighted four issuer cases. The large company case that they mentioned, I didn't really think was particularly interesting. It seemed to me that they were only including it because it was a large company and there weren't too many large companies in the in the enforcement actions. And I thought that was noteworthy that, that there just weren't many. You didn't see. The other two cases I thought were interesting um, for two reasons, just on disclosure controls. And I think we're going to continue to see the SEC focus on disclosure issues going forward and disclosure control failures, especially when they're when they when they're investigating and they can't find an accounting error, they're gonna certainly shift to to disclosure and that's what they've done historically. And those are the two cases they highlighted. In that regard, I think we're gonna continue to see the SEC push the envelope on MDNA violations, a management discussion and analysis violations as well, because they've done that and I think I discussed that on my podcast with early shipment pull in disclosure cases. One of the cases here involved lack of disclosure of material trends, and the other one was a lack of disclosure of material changes. It's not like there's never been cases on those, but it's it's it, they're on the rare side. They're usually sort of channel stuffing type type cases. So I think I think these cases highlight the need for companies to assess their disclosure practices to ensure compliance with the MDNA. And I also think it's interesting that the SEC guidance, if you look at it, you know, in a nutshell, it's supposed to be disclosures through management's eyes. But increasingly, I think we're seeing the, the SEC second guessing what that, what that management judgment is and whether, whether there's going to be some violations. The SEC did highlight one auditor case. I think that that, that case is important to, to, to note only because it just shows that Clearly, the SEC's focused on gatekeepers will continue to be, and also what auditors are required to do or what they should do when there's a potential material error. 
I think we're going to see the SEC continue to challenge a company's SAB 99 materiality analysis, and, and auditors are going to have to be careful whether they rely on those analyses if there's questions or things that they need to follow up on. And also, you know, if there is an error and they don't restate, the company doesn't restate, I think the uh, focusing on qualitative materiality issues is going to be something that the, the SEC continues to look at for companies and auditors. And I think I've spoken about that on the, on the podcast. Yeah. It's been a popular topic lately. I think this is three episodes in a row where we've talked about restatements, a lot of conversation around big R and little r and, and clawbacks of executive comp. So I, I think you're right. That's going to be a focus area going forward. Yeah. And it's a tricky area on that, but definitely need to w- watch that. And then I think it was noteworthy that during 2022, we, we really didn't see many revenue recognition cases or earnings management cases. I mean, there were some, uh, but not as many as, as prior years. I do think we're going to, going forward, we are going to see more revenue recognition and earnings management on ASC 606. Now that those are going to be pretty much, you know, the new stand, accounting standard is going to be more relevant with respect to the investigations that are going on. I think the ASC 605 time period is getting a little old for the investigations. And we're going to see st- stuff about unsupported air- entries and rounding and non-GAAP measures. Clearly, we're going to see more ESG issues because that's a hot topic. And there's been, a you know, on the website, there's ESG cases. And I think we'll see more cases there. One also interesting thing is I think we'll see more, potentially more internal control charges in insider trading cases where the company is repurchasing shares or whether they're if they're purchasing company in a target i think we might see more internal control charges there as far as the stat what i did was as listeners and you know the sec reports results by program areas so it's you know accounting insider trading market manipulation and they show the uh, the numbers as a percentage of total enforcement actions and as a percentage of adjusted actions that exclude follow-on APs and delinquent filings. So as you may guess, I focus on FCPA and accounting, which are disclosed as two separate categories. So FCPA was 1% of the cases in 2022, which was consistent with last year, but down from 2020, which was 2%, and 2018 and 2019, which was 3%. So in terms of cases, we're we're just not seeing many. There was only six FCPA cases in 2022. Regarding the issuer cases, 2022 was 12% of total cases and 16% if you take out the follow-ons or the delinquent filings. So between 2018 and 2022, you know, it ranged from 12% to 17% for the cases that were didn't have follow-ons in AP. So 16% was sort of right in between that. I also looked at the breakdown of civil actions versus administrative proceedings, which was rel- relatively consistent over the last four years, it ranged from 19% to 27% over that time frame. It was 25% in 2022. So we're not seeing much change there. And then finally, the number of respondents and defendants were sort of mid-range over the last four years. In 2021, they were close to 90 respondents and defendants. And in 2019, it was 146. So in 2022, it was 114. So it was right in the middle. So no, so nothing, nothing particularly ill, but it's, you know, the, I think you're seeing lower lower overall percentages of accounting FCPA cases than we did, obviously, back in the earlier time periods, more than 10 years ago or so. 
Yeah, it's interesting. Thanks for walking through the stats. I mean, I think I at least need to spend a little bit more time with the numbers to understand where some of the new ones were. I think, you know, in the in, in the press release announcing the results and in a speech by Director Graywall earlier this week, they highlighted that the total number of cases, 760, which included 462 new or standalone cases, was up like six and a half percent. So I'm just not sure where they slot into the buckets that the SEC provides in their reporting, but they're they're hidden in there somewhere. We'd like to welcome back Teresa Goody-Guillen of Baker Hostetler, who, Kurt, as you know, was one of our earliest podcast guests back in the summer of 2020. We talked about what was then a different cryptocurrency landscape from DLTs (laughs) to ICO two short years ago, but it seems like many, many crypto seasons ago. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. It was a long time ago in crypto. You got it. So, Teresa, thanks for coming back on with us. The SEC enforcement results for fiscal 22 were just released this week. What are your key takeaways? Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. So, oh, for sure. But I think the first kind of big takeaway here is that the SEC is using a pretty hefty stick. So there's going to be significant fines unless you cooperate and cooperate early. So, you know, this being Gruwal's full first year's enforcement director, it seems like the stories we heard about his enforcement style were accurate. I remember one vignette is that he charges the bank robber for robbing the bank and for jaywalking when he's running from the bank. And and I think we certainly saw that with penalties, you know, I'm sure as you saw in the report, and it's been touted by the by the chair that the total money ordered in SEC actions was the highest in SEC history, over $6.4 billion, which is up $2.5 billion from last year. And I think, you know, much of this is due to the fact that the civil penalties were the highest on record at over $4 billion. And so, you know, while we're seeing the total money ordered is a record high, the number of cases it brought Mm -hmm. isn't. So what that tells me is that the focus here seems to be on making sure the penalties are big enough to serve as an effective deterrent. With the carrot and stick approach, you have to have a carrot. (laughs) So the SEC is offering some carrots and rewarding cooperation. But I think we saw the cooperation has to be pretty significant and early and coupled with remediation. So the rewards were pretty notable, not imposing penalties at all or substantially limiting penalties. So it's good to see there is some of a carrot there. And as I talked about last time with crypto, a big takeaway here, I think, is SEC is all in on crypto. So, you know, after doubling its staff in the crypto assets and cyber unit and creating a crypto trial unit within the Division of Enforcement, which is the first time the SEC has created a targeted subject matter group and a trial group in its enforcement division. Yeah. <laughs> it's really continuing to focus its resources here. And I think what we saw, you know, last time when I talked to you guys, we were talking more about the Section 5 actions for, you know, unregistered securities offerings. Here, they brought a first-of-its-kind action against crypto lending platforms for allegations of violating the registration requirements of the Investment Company Act. And the penalty here wasn't insignificant. It was $100 million. So a pretty significant action there. Its first insider trading case for allegations of insider trading of crypto asset securities. Uh, we now have a new term for them, crypto asset securities. We've called them lots of different things mm. by lots of different That's regulators. Right. So we see that the SEC has given its term of our crypto asset securities. 
And from this, I think we can see, you know, not only from the enforcement actions, but what, you know, Chair Gensler is coming out and saying in speeches on TV is that he's not shy to go after crypto whenever possible. So even if it strains the jurisdictional precedent. Um, So I think we'll continue to see those resources in crypto. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually want to go back to something you said just a just a minute ago, Teresa, and it sort of has to do with the the shift in enforcement focus, right? Like Chris, you said it's been a long two years is a long time in crypto, right? So we've gone from I think a division that was focused a lot on initial coin offerings and issuers, perhaps, to it feels like now we're very focused on platforms or exchanges and registration requirements. I mean, I was I was joking. We were all at the same conference earlier this week, but I forget who, who it was, but they just kept saying register and comply, register and comply. And I, I feel like maybe that is the focus of the division now, but I don't know what your, your take is on that, Teresa. Yeah. I mean, I have heard that and read that there, the SEC is looking into all the different exchanges. And so I definitely think that that's likely happening. And, you know, Gensler's also said, come in and register and that the runway is getting shorter, you know, so I think that also indicates what we're going to see in, in enforcement actions coming up this year. But I, I agree with you. I'm, I'm hearing and seeing the same things and the, kind of the, the shift in kind of where they're putting their crypto resources. I think that's great. Carrots and sticks. You know, there's no no other way to define it. Uh, Teresa, you know that we will always rely on you to help us, say, decrypt the crypto world as we go forward. Thanks for coming back on, and, and we look to talking to you again soon. We would like to welcome back to the show Jane Norberg. Jane, of course, is a partner at Arnold & Porter, and before joining the firm, she served as the chief of the SEC's Office of the Whistleblower, Jane is also now a three-time guest on the Insecurities podcast, which I think puts her at the top of the leaderboard, above Commissioner Purse, above J.W. Verrett. That, that's really high praise. Jane has been on episode 42, where we talked all about the whistleblower rules, and she was on our New Year's Eve special last year. So go back and check those out. Jane, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. And I'm really honored that I have been on three times. I feel I feel pretty honored. So thank you so much for having me back on again. Yeah, we always love to have you. We love talking about whistleblowers and, and our listeners love hearing about it. And that's what you're here for today. So on the show today, we've been talking to some other folks about the SEC Enforcement Division's annual report, which came out a few days ago. On the same day, and perhaps with a, a little less fanfare, if I'm being honest, the SEC also released the annual report from the whistleblower office. I know you and I both anxiously await that report to see what the numbers are like, to see what kind of things we can take away from the report. And so I guess I'm wondering, now that you've had some time to read it, what were some of the key takeaways or themes that you found in the report this year? Yeah, it was actually a really interesting report, the second highest year in terms of dollar amounts paid and awards granted to whistleblowers. I think the report noted that the SEC paid $229 million in awards to 103 whistleblowers last year. And that brings the grand total up to $1.3 billion paid to whistleblowers over the life of the life of the program, which is a pretty pretty huge number. The the another, you know, another takeaway though when you're thinking about about dollar amounts, I would say is looking at the corporate impact. The, you know, the SEC reported that information from meritorious whistleblowers 
has resulted in more than $6.3 billion in monetary sanctions being ordered against companies and individuals. So when you think about the $1.3 billion paid to whistleblowers, you also have to think about, well, what's the impact on corporations? And that $6.3 billion number you know, is even higher than what's been paid to whistleblowers. So um, paying attention to those internal tips as companies get them is, is, real, is really critical. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, just how many tips they continue to get. I mean, last year, the number was enormous. And I mean, the double the number from, from 2020, as I recall. But this year, they kept pace. In fact, they went up again. So I don't know. What does that, what does that sort of tell you about the popularity of the program? Yeah, it's really interesting. That was the big unknown for me this year after the the number going up. I think it was 75% between 2020 and, and 2021. The question was, was that an anomaly, you know, because of COVID maybe, people working from home, you know, was that just like a one-year type thing? And what were we going to see this year? So actually, when I opened the report, I actually skipped right over the numbers we just talked about, went right to the tips. <laughs> and, and and yeah, it, it, shockingly, it stayed right around the same amount of over 12,000 tips received last year, too. And I'll tell you, Kurt, it's really interesting because I, I think it means that it, it it, the the tip levels may stay there. I think there's it's not only the popularity of the program. I also think it's the change in how people are working and people sitting at home and working remotely. It's very very easy, you know, to take screenshots or to type in a tip to the SEC versus talking to to the company about it. And so you know, this may just be the 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 way things are going to stay for the for the time being. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, look, we, we also continue to see some really big numbers just in terms of individual press releases around awards. I think, you know, the, the top five in fiscal 2022 were, were $40 million, $37 million, 17, 16, 15. Some of those were shared, you know, between two whistleblowers. But when you see numbers like that, you got to think it's going to encourage people to keep coming in. Absolutely. No question about it. And and you can also see from the numbers that it's also a worldwide program. So not only is information coming in from the United, United States, but also from lots of foreign countries. So this isn't just a, a, a U.S.-based program. The SEC is getting tips from all around the world. I have something else I want to ask you about the report. It was something that I noticed that I don't recall seeing before. You can tell me if I've missed it or if maybe it was something you were thinking about while you were still in the office. But you know, toward the end of the report, they always break down the tips by by category or by type of tip. And so you might see offering fraud or manipulation, things like that. This year, there was a standalone category for ICOs, initial coin offerings, and, and cryptocurrencies. I don't remember seeing that before, but it was a big number. That was 14% of all tips. So 14% of, you know, 12,000, whatever it was, tips. Is that is that something new? Is that noteworthy to you, Jane? It it is noteworthy, and I'll tell you why. So, first of all, that category just started being tracked. I think it was about a year and a half ago. So, last year's report was the first time that that number was ever reported around tips related to ICOs and cryptocurrencies. But the thing that stood out to me is every single year since the beginning of the program the top three categories have always, always been manipulation, offering fraud, corporate disclosures, and financials. This year, to your point, cryptocurrency tips 
have snuck in there and made it into the into the top three. And even though it's a newer category, last year it was such a smaller number that this seems to be something that whistleblowers are really paying attention to and reporting to the commission. Interesting. We'll have to keep our eye on that number going forward. Uh, you know, I'll sort of open it up. Is there anything anything else you want to talk about from the report this year? Yeah, I would say the other thing that really stood out to me, both in the in the SEC's annual report on the whistleblower program, but also on the enforcement program, because it kind of crossed over. Both of those reports talked about the Rule 21F17 cases and attempts to impede someone from reporting to the commission. And I highlight it because that seems to be a very big focus right now of the the Office of the Whistleblower and the Commission. I heard Cree Kelly, the, the chief of the Office of the Whistleblower, speak about it recently on a panel, and she had called these 21F17 cases the, you know, quote, bread and butter cases of the Office of the Whistleblower, which I thought was really interesting, which means that they're just, just looking at them, they're easy to bring, and that I think the expectation would be that we're going to see a lot more of these coming out of the commission. All right, something else to keep our eye on. A really interesting framing from Cree, bread and butter. I don't know that's. I don't know that you ever used that phrase to talk about the 21F17 cases, but maybe that's the world we live in now. Yep, I did. I did not. So, so to me, it's a, it's a change. It's a change in in to, in tone, and I think it'll be really interesting to see how many of these cases come out in the next fiscal year. Yeah, agreed. Okay, well, Jane, thank you for helping us walk through this year's whistleblower annual report. Really appreciate your insights as always. And, and we'll, we'll have to have you back, I guess, to talk about it again next year. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's always fun to have some old friends back on the podcast. And I was pleasantly surprised that some of the notes we hit when we were thinking about <laughs> right. the report at least were in harmony with with the notes that they were hitting so i don't know what did what do you think about our guests reactions i i like hearing kind of the different flavors if you will you know obviously each of them practices in in somewhat different area and somewhat overlapping as well but interesting delineations there obviously you know howard and i could talk about sab 99 assessments all day kurt you probably could not but Teresa's uh you know knowledge of crypto and and jane's focus on the whistleblower program <laughs> i mean to, to me it's a great kind of gathering of folks to to bring a different lens to, to each piece of the report that, that they find most interesting what do you think yeah, I agree with you. I mean, it was nice to hear all of them kind of zoom in on different pieces of the report. I think that they were all kind of focused on the statistics as well, because I think there were some eye-popping numbers in there like we we introduced up top. But no, really enjoyed it. Thanks to all of them for coming back. You're always welcome on the show. Jane, as I mentioned, I think she's yeah. she's our new leader in the clubhouse, <laughs> right? She's three times on the show now. So That's always right. good to have her too. Well, looking forward to hearing from you all what your thoughts are in the enforcement Report, you know, don't hesitate to reach out to Kurt or I or, or look for some programming from PLI in the future too as we get further beyond the release last week to, to share some of that as well. So I'm uh, looking forward to it. And Kurt, uh, if we don't speak, safe travels and I hope you and yours have a happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, same to you, buddy. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag insecurities pod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at Ekimoff CPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time.
Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.